You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Useless information. Hi, I'm Steve Silverman, and you're listening to a classic episode of the Useless Information Podcast. Back in the early days of the podcast, I was a bit disorganized, and that's mainly because I never expected to be recording so many years later. But at some point, I began to create a physical file folder for each episode. In this obscure story about Jackie Robinson being court-martialed, which was released on May 7th of 2009, is one of those early folders. And I have to admit, I was a bit surprised when I opened it a few minutes ago to find my eight-page handwritten script inside. It's also the oldest story that I still have the original Audacity audio files for. And I should warn you, there's a lot of heavy breathing on this one. Uh, but unfortunately, that's what happens when the microphone is just inches from one's mouth. Uh, I do have to breathe from time to time. Anyway, this is a great story. So sit back and enjoy. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast, my collection of fascinating true stories from the flip side of history. My name is Steve Silman. And today's story is on the court martial of the great Jackie Robinson. But before we get to that story, let's start with today's question of the day. Today's question of the day has to do with those black and white barcodes, the UPC barcodes that you find on the back of just about every product you buy today. You know, you walk up to the register and the cashier takes your product and just slides it past the uh, laser scanner and it goes beep. And of course, then the uh, product is recorded and it's added to your bill. Well, at some point, someone once walked up to a register and was the first person ever to get their product scanned. My question for you, uh, you may not know who did it, but maybe you know what the first product ever scanned was. In fact, it's sitting in the Smithsonian today. So my question for you is what is the first product ever to be scanned at a retail register for its UPC barcode? And I'll let you know the answer to that question at the end of today's podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And now for today's story on the court-martial of the great, legendary uh, baseball player, Jackie Robinson. 
Now, when I was growing up, uh, my dad loved sports, and I'm not as big a fan, but he always talked about sports. And one of the people that he always, always mentioned was Jackie Robinson. Yeah, he mentioned many others, but he always seemed to come back to Jackie Robinson. I think he was just a really, really big fan of his. And a couple of weeks ago, I was watching the news now. Of course, a couple of weeks ago can vary depending on when you're listening to this podcast. So a couple of weeks ago, which was April 15, 2009, I was watching TV, and I noticed on the news that they mentioned that all of the players in the major leagues of baseball were wearing number 42 on their jerseys. That happened to be Jackie Robinson's number. Uh, and that number was actually retired from all the major league teams back in 1997 to honor him. And because... Uh, April 15th was the 67th anniversary of his entrance into the major leagues. All of the players that day wore his number to honor him. It was at that moment that I shoved aside the podcast that I was working on and decided to tell you this story. I just thought it was an appropriate time. It's a story that I've been sitting on for a couple of years. Uh, I don't know where I came across it, but I've just been accumulating bits and pieces here and there and just kind of put them in a file folder. And as soon as I heard this on the news, I knew I had to share it with you because so many people know about Jackie Robinson, the baseball player, the great one of the greatest of all times and how he broke down the color barrier. But few people know just prior to him going into the major leagues, he faced court martial in the military. He was almost dishonorably discharged, which would have meant the end of any professional career in baseball, basketball, football, whatever he would have chosen. So the fact that we know all about him today is just because of the outcome of this trial and i thought it'd be a good thing to tell you because it's something that few people actually know about so here we go so let's start with a little background uh first thing you should probably know is that uh, jackie robinson was the first ucla student to ever letter in four sports in the same season they were track uh basketball football and of course baseball which he's famous for but what most people don't know is that baseball was actually his worst sport in college. He was actually their star running back in football. Kind of an odd little twist there. Uh, the other thing you should probably know, uh, and this really doesn't have anything to do with the story, but sp- he wasn't the only one that was good in sports in his family. His brother Mac actually finished second to Jesse Owens in the 200-meter dash in the 1936 Berlin Olympics. Unfortunately, Jackie was forced to drop out of UCLA in 1940 in the latter part of his senior year because of financial, uh, you know, bad financial situation at home. Uh, And since pro-level athletics were off limits to blacks at this time, he had no choice but to take a number of uh, lower-level sports-related jobs until he was drafted into the Army in 1942, and that's basically where this story begins. Like so many other draftees, he was assigned to an Army cavalry at Fort Riley in Kansas, And he started to think that maybe there's a career here. So he applied for officer candidate school at Fort Riley, uh, which for short is called the OCS. Anyway, uh, the Army actually had an established policy of allowing blacks into the OCS. They had established that in July of 1941, just prior to him uh, entering the military. But the reality was that they really weren't letting any in. Yeah, you could apply, but your application just seemed to be caught up in, you know, permanent review. No blacks were being admitted to the OCS. And when Jackie realized this, he turned to Joe Lewis, who just happened to be the heavyweight champion of the world at the time, and he was at Fort Riley, like so many other people. Now, uh, Joe Lewis was not a commissioned officer, but he had clout, and he was able to uh, bring the situation to the attention of some of his commanding officers. And it really wasn't very long before Jackie Robinson and several other black uh, men were enrolled in the OCS. Now, maybe that's coincidence, but I don't think so. 
Now, keep in mind that Jackie Robinson was somewhat of a national sports celebrity at this time, and while he may have been thinking about a military career, the coaches at the fort had a different thing in mind. Basically, they wanted him on their football team. So Jackie Robinson turned around and said, no, I want to play on your baseball team. So he tried out for the baseball team, but when he showed up for tryouts, he was told by an officer that he had to play for the colored team. He couldn't play on that baseball team. Now, this really was an incredible insult because there was no colored baseball team. They were basically trying to force him to play on the football team. And in fact, they threatened to do so. So Jackie Robinson made it very clear that they can force him to play, but they can't force him to play well. And that was basically the end of them trying to get him onto the football team. In January of 1943, he was commissioned as a second lieutenant. But at this time, black officers in the uh, Jim Crow South got very little respect from whites. And as a result, he had several more minor run-ins with the prejudicial white officers at the base. As an officer, Robinson wanted to accompany his battalion overseas, but there was one little minor problem, and that is basically Jackie Robinson was on limited service, and that's due to an ankle injury he'd received playing sports in college. Now, the military said, you can go overseas with your battalion, but you have to be willing to give up your right to sue us. We don't want to get sued if you get hurt overseas. And Robinson agreed. He said, I'll sign away my rights and let me go. Well, they turned around and said, well, we'll let you go if you go and get a medical exam and they say it's okay. And Robinson said, sure. Uh, and that's actually where the trouble begins. The medical examination itself basically was a non-event. It took place at a hospital about 30 miles from the base on July 6, 1944. But it's w while he was waiting for the results that he got himself into trouble. Basically, Robinson got a pass to go back to the base only to find his battalion out on maneuvers. So, hmm, he's got some spare time. Well, what should he do? Well, he went into the officer's club, and there he met the wife of another black lieutenant, a woman named Mrs. Gordon H. Jones. Not really sure what her first name is. It seems to be lost to history. Anyway, uh, when he decided to go back to the hospital, Mrs. Jones mentioned that her house was along the way. So Mrs. Jones accompanied Jackie Robinson on his bus ride back to the hospital that same day. And this is really where the real trouble started. Because the U.S. military may have been officially desegregated on paper, but the military of the South was definitely not. The Jim Crow mentality was still in full, full force. Upon boarding the bus, Robinson sat right down next to Mrs. Jones. Uh, but it turns out that she had a much lighter skin color, and the bus driver thought that she was white, and here was a black man sitting next to a white woman. So the driver, a guy named Milton Renegar, demanded that Robinson move further back on the bus. You know, blacks to the back of the bus. That was the policy at the time. But Jackie wouldn't budge. He knew that the Army had issued orders ending racial segregation on military bases, and he was well within his rights to sit next to her. Anyway, a heated argument ensued, and the driver eventually backed down, and the ride continued. And everything seemed fine until Robinson and Mrs. Jones had to switch buses. And at that point, the driver, Renegar, returned with his dispatcher and two other drivers. And the war of words escalated. It became more and more intense with a lot of bad words, uh, you know, the F-bomb, the really bad N-word, and so on, being tossed back and forth uh, among all the parties involved. At the time, it was okay for uh, you know white men to belittle black men with the N-word and other racial you know remarks, 
But boy, if you were a black man and you turned around and did the same to a white person, you were in big, big trouble. So Robinson ended up being escorted by two MPs back to uh, police headquarters at the base. And while inside the guard building, he's repeatedly again belittled with racially unfriendly remarks. He was given a hearing uh, before uh, Assistant Provost Marshal Captain Gerald M. Bear, and this uh, proceeding truly was a bear. It was completely unbalanced from the get-go. Each person involved got to tell a story to Captain Bear, and Robinson kept interrupting by pointing out the inaccuracies in their stories. Believe it or not, 13 depositions were taken, but to no one's surprise, no one ever asked Mrs. Jones for her version of the events. And believe it or not, a stenographer actually uh, interrupted and said, and this is a quote, don't you know that you have no rights sitting up there in the white part of the bus? Uh, and that's the end of the quote. Yes, uh, you know, you can see this really was a balanced hearing. Now, uh, camp officials ultimately decided they wanted to court-martial Robinson, but his commanding officer, a guy named Colonel R.L. Bates, refused. Robinson was a good person. Anyway, uh, they got around this quite quickly by transferring him to another battalion, and then his new commander, of course, signed the papers almost immediately, and there was the court-martial. So what were the charges? Well, here's the list. Insubordination, disturbing the peace, drunkenness, conduct unbecoming of an officer, insulting a civilian woman, and refusing to obey the lawful laws of a superior officer. Now, Robinson knew that he was in big, big trouble, so he appealed to the NAACP. But they had their hands full. They were swamped with requests from black soldiers all across the country that were being unfairly convicted during the war, and therefore they didn't have the resources to help defend him. They did offer him some legal advice, but that's all they could actually do. Of course, word started to get around the base of the court-martial of Jackie Robinson. Now, keep in mind, it's one thing to court-martial a black person in the South this time, but it was another thing to actually do so to a well-respected sports celebrity like Jackie Robinson. So the military knew that they had a big, hot potato on their hands, and they had to do something about it. They needed to somehow bury this quickly. And what they did, basically, is by the time the case actually reached trial, somehow all of the charges related to the bus incident were dropped. Now he was only charged with the two lesser charges of insubordination related to the events at the guardhouse. Now, this may have seemed like an advantage, but actually it turned out not to be. Because no mention of the event that led up to these charges, the incident that actually took place on the bus, were allowed to be introduced as evidence. So how do you defend yourself? It was a big problem. So he was no longer on trial for refusing to move to the back of the bus. He was on trial for what happened at the guardhouse. And this is where a really, really good lawyer comes in handy. Robinson uh, got the services of a Captain William A. Klein, and he did a great, great job at pointing out the many inconsistencies that were made by these witnesses when they took the stand. And while Klein was not allowed to bring up anything about the bus incident during the trial, he skillfully manipulated and managed to introduce enough evidence to show that Robinson had been subjected to the racial hostility over and over again by nearly all those people involved. As you can imagine, after all the testimony was heard, Robinson was acquitted of all the charges. He was finally in the clear. Now, after all this, and there's really no surprise here, Jackie Robinson wanted out of the military. He knew that there was no career here. And honestly, I would have done the same exact thing. 
And this is where he was really, really smart. What he did is he said, I'm no longer willing to sign away my rights of compensation for the injuries that I may obtain in the military. Basically, he used his limited service classification from his bad ankle as a means of getting an early discharge. And that early discharge took effect in November of 1944. And now he was done with his military career. And I'm sure he's pretty happy about that. Now, I'll bring the story to a close there because the rest of his life, which includes his historic, uh, you know, phenomenal baseball career, is very, very well documented. But I can't help but wonder what would have become of him if he had been found guilty and dishonorably discharged. Uh, his life would have almost certainly taken a very, very different path. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. At the time, I only felt a punch. I think everything went wrong. His drug of choice was heroin. Binging and purging over and over and over. Evaluate you, and if you're okay to go, they're going to let you go. This is Justin, and I do the Peripheral Podcast. I have a true crime background, but when telling the stories of true crime, sometimes you have to gloss over topics like mental illness, drug addiction, sexual assault. And I feel like we do that in life too. So this podcast is my attempt to bring all of these topics that are on the peripheral into the mainstream. So please join me wherever you listen to podcasts. And now for a few words from our retro sponsor. Have you commercial for Wheaties actually started airing on Christmas Eve of 1926 and has the honor of being the first singing commercial ever. It was sung by the Wheaties Quartet. Now what is kind of odd is at this time you couldn't sell products on the air. So if you listen they never ever say buy Wheaties. They actually say have you tried Wheaties. They never actually tell you to buy it. Now, most of the country wasn't hearing this musical version at the time. They were hearing a non, a verbal uh, version of the commercial. And uh, Wheaties was actually on the verge of being discontinued, was selling very, very poorly. When an advertising executive at General Mills noticed that the small pockets where the singing commercial were running, they were actually seeing increases in the sale of Wheaties. So they figured they had nothing to lose, and they changed all their national advertising to the singing commercial, and believe it or not, saved Wheaties from extinction. That product wouldn't be around today if it wasn't for that singing commercial. And now for a few totally useless yet totally true tidbits from history. It's time for what I like to call News of the Weird Past. Our first little tidbit goes back to July of 1923, where in Chicago it's reported that they were holding the annual convention of the International Association of Specialty Salesmen. Their president had arranged uh, for the man with the longest beard in the world to actually appear there. His name was Hans W. Langseth. He was 77, and he came from Barney, North Dakota, although he actually did originally come from Norway. Now, his beard, believe it or not, measured 17 feet long, and he had to carry it in a bag because it was so long. 
Now, uh, I checked into this and found out that really is true. And when he died in 1927, his beard measured 17 and a half feet long. And if you're curious, apparently it's on display at the Smithsonian, although I haven't really checked to make sure it's really there. Um, but maybe someday if I'm visiting, I will seek it out. But it could be in one of their storerooms somewhere. But the Smithsonian definitely has it in their possession. Our next little story goes back to April of 1926, where it's reported a guy named Meeples Moe of Denver, Colorado, had trained his pet squirrel to go up to two cups, and under one of the cups he hid a nut. So the squirrel would go up to the two cups and wag its tail when it was, when it was in front of the cup that had the nut under it. Now he was so proud of this that he actually sent the squirrel back to Norway, where he was originally from, so that his grandmother could actually see it and have it as a pet. Unfortunately, his grandmother was bit by the squirrel. So when his when her husband got home from a sea voyage, she ordered him to actually shoot the squirrel. But things didn't quite go as planned because he missed the squirrel. Uh, the bullet went through the window and shot grandma uh, in the wrist. Uh, and luckily the squirrel escaped unharmed. Our last little tidbit goes back to November of 1937. It involves two sisters named Lois and Louise Coates who are 24 years old and happen to be identical twins. Well, it seems just the previous October 1936, they had gotten a divorce from two Marines named Ray and Roy Sebring, who just happened to also be identical twins. Two months later, in December of 1936, they got married to Herbert and Hubert Sharp, who also were identical twins. But then it was quickly realized that the divorce from the first set of twins was never finalized, so they got their marriage to the second set of twins annulled. So what did they do? They decided they would remarry the first set of twins, Ray and Roy Sebring, when they returned from active duty in Honolulu. And where would they go? They go back to Oneida, Kansas, where both couples were originally from. Very interesting. And now the answer to today's question of the day, which was, what was the first product ever to have its UPC barcode scanned at the checkout register? You know, beep. Anyway, it turns out it was a 10-pack of Wrigley's Juicy Fruit Gum. And that was done on June 26, 1974. And to be very specific, it was at 8.01 a.m. at a Marsh supermarket in Troy, Ohio. The cost of that 10-pack was 67 cents. Today it would be somewhere between 2 and $3, depending on where you purchased it. The shopper's name was Clyde Dawson, and he could have actually picked any product out of his basket, but that just happened to be the first one. And it's now in the collection of the Smithsonian, uh, but my guess is it's kind of rotten at this point. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's story on the great Jackie Robinson, the first product to have its barcode scan, the retro sponsor, and of course the news of the weird past tidbits that I like to collect. If you'd like to read more true stories just like this, be sure to get a copy of one of my books. They are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. Both are written by me, Steve Silverman, and are available from your local bookseller online and, of course, at your local library. If for some crazy reason you like to contact me, you can just drop me an email. My email address is useless at steve.silverman.name. That's useless at steve.silverman.name. Or visit my website, which is uselessinformation.org. Uselessinformation.org. And lastly, as in the past, I greatly appreciate if you could log into iTunes and leave some positive comments, because the more positive comments there are, the more listeners there will be for the podcast. And again, thank you very much for listening.